this is an old idea. It comes from Socrates. It comes from Plato. Later, Aristotle uh, incorporated it. And then even further on, Hegel, Marx, and then Ayn Rand. They all share some kind of relationship in the sense that they had, they wrestled with the dialectic and had various different takes on what that is and what, what it means, but they all, they all had a dialectical perspective. And so I don't want to get too deep into this, but Socrates, uh, he, if you read The Republic by Plato, you see Socrates interacting with a, with a whole host of different people, exploring themes like justice and truth and morality. And his, his approach, the Socratic approach, was to have dialogue, which is the root of dialectic, is to have dialogue with, his, with different people over these issues to get as many different perspectives as possible. And it was through that dialogue and through this exploring of different perspectives that Socrates said we'd get closer to the truth, right? Because it wasn't that, it, it, that the truth had one facet, it was that there was, it was multifaceted and, it, and through dialogue, we'd get a, we can get a grip on the various facets easier than if we're just in isolation with ourselves, trying to imagine in our own heads you know, all the different facets of something, right? You'd be limited. So it's through Socratic, the Socratic method, through dialogue and interaction with others who have different views and different perspectives that we can build a, a more truer representative picture of what's actually going on in the reality. Welcome to Specific Knowledge. I'm your host, Devin Marty. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring how people coordinate and build in a dynamic world where knowledge is distributed and ephemeral. With a focus on creative destruction and the role of blockchain as a decentralizing technology, we discuss new ways to reimagine and reshape the current social order. I'm joined by my two friends, Lucas and Ryan, who are experts in their field. Today's episode is about dialectics and overcoming dualistic thinking. We hope you enjoy episode 12 of Specific Knowledge. All right, guys, welcome. Episode 12, Dialectics and Freedom. I'm sure we can define one of those words a bit better uh, and tell our audience how that leads to a more free society. But before we get into that, Ryan and Lucas, how are you doing? I'm doing fine. Uh, just enjoying a... Uh... The, uh, the Tuesday morning, I had a birthday yesterday. And yes, went, happy birthday, out. man. Thank you. Thank you. We happy had a good birthday, dinner, brother. ate some sushi, and uh, just happy to be here. <laughs> Jealous. And uh, Lucas, what's up? Blessed. I'm doing well. I'm excited to be here and talk about uh, freedom and dialectics and listen to Ryan explore this and, and do this together. I'm also excited to uh, be here with a full moon at the end yes. of summer beginning. we got the equinox and fall. So, you know, it's a beautiful time and uh, you know, what a beautiful topic too, really going into the equinox of, of balance. You know, it's all about finding a balance on, on both sides. So yeah, I, I love the synchronicity and I'm excited mm -hmm. to talk about this and it's always fun to hang out with you guys for some time and explore specific knowledge. <laughs> Yeah, of course. Yeah, so uh, Ryan, you brought this to our attention. Uh, a friend of yours, Chris Sayabara, has has some pretty neat thoughts on this, and uh, hopefully he can come on the show one day. But I uh, would love to hear you explain it because you know it best, and then we can uh, launch into some conversation about utopias and overcoming duality and, and a whole lot more. 
And no pressure because, because you know that Chris, Chris Sayabara coming on the show is contingent upon how well you go into this explanation. (laughs) He's a cool guy. He's a cool guy. He's he's forgiving. (laughs) Yep. And he's got a lot to say about this too. When you, if you interact with him, you'll find he's, he's a, he's got a lot of information, right? So I've, I've learned a lot from him. I, I first heard of Chris through the libertarian movement and there was his his uh, bachelor's thesis at NYU i believe it was NYU was the first thing i read by him and it and it does bring in this dialectical idea that's why i'm bringing it up so he he was fortunate to meet rothbard when he was a, an undergraduate and um well they they both lived in new york so it wouldn't have been too difficult and he was into the libertarian chris was a part of the libertarian community so uh you know bump rubbed elbows with with the great rothbard and this this interaction kind of fueled his direction he was going to take with his with his thesis paper as, a, as an undergrad. And he did a paper on the Pullman strike. And he talked about how the Pullman strike is not something that happened, not not some it's typically read as just like a an example of the natural antagonism or conflict between labor and management. And Chris's paper highlighted how this violent conflict, the Pullman strike how it was occurring in a context of inflationary mon- monetary debasement, right? With, mon- with inflation of, of, uh, of the money unit. So uh, there, it, th- that came first. So this, there was a lot of, there was money creation, monetary shenanigans, which is a classic you know, theme in, in economic history. And then through that, there became a, a struggle, right? As the, as the laborers realized, hey, you know, the cost of living is going up. We better try to get some higher wages to match that that change you know so we can be so this exchange can continue on on in both parties be happy and the and that those those negotiations didn't work out very well they broke down in strikes and then later on it became violent and the national guard was sent in and it was a massive massive thing and so chris's paper highlighted how the context of monetary inflation was key in creating a, this dispute making it turn helping ensure it turned violent and that was a revisionist take, you know, something that Rothbard had influenced in multiple ways. One being that Rothbard's focus on revisionism and class conflict is it was always front and center in his history. His work on history was always through the lens of these different classes and groups competing for the control of the state and and their how their interests were at, at odds. And then also, you know, if you know Rothbard, he was always talking about money and inflation and and um, and monetary expansion and how it led to inflation and how that created a lot of social consequences that weren't always so good. So putting these two pieces together, Chris was able to kind of shine a light on the Pullman strike in a way that was novel and and kind of uh, new. And I think he won won some awards for it as an undergrad and it kind of fueled his, the direction he was going to take going on. And I bring this up because it's a perfect example of dialectical reasoning. So before we try to define dialectical reasoning, I figure it'd be good to give a thought experiment or an example of it just to make it more real concrete before we go abstract and the, to make it real simple it's not that there's this irreducible conflict between management and labor it's that in a certain context that conflict become becomes way more exasperated than it would otherwise and the context is inflation price inflation so it's it's looking at a universal tendency right for management and labor to be at odds but it's saying this context, this specific context about inflation is really what made this problem great. And that without that, without that monetary inflation context, this struggle, this conflict wouldn't be, wouldn't be as, um, as heightened as it is. So, 
So it's, it's dialectical because dialectics is about context and not about trying to figure out universal claims that apply in all times and places across the board, but rather it's, it's about how these universals uh, manifest themselves and, and how they shape our world, but in, in relationship to a certain context and not just something that's abstract and, and separate from. And, and so, so let me see if I can make this even 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 easier to understand. Oh, go ahead. Ryan, you have a question. This yeah. might be jumping the gun, but could you yeah. make could, could you discuss it in the guise or in, in the context of um, something that I'm sure most people have had yes. this discussion in their life, uh, like a cop- capitalism versus socialism? Okay, argument. yeah, yeah. Well, before we before we get there, I'll go right to that. But let me just stop and say one thing first. So Chris didn't create this dialectics idea. This is an old idea. It comes from Socrates. It comes from Plato. Later, Aristotle. Uh, incorporated it. And then even further on, Hegel, Marx, and then Ayn Rand, they all share some kind of relationship in the sense that they had, they wrestled with the dialectic and had various different takes on what that is and what, what it means, but they all, they all had a dialectical perspective. And so I don't want to get too deep into this, but Socrates, uh, if you read the Republic by Plato, you see Socrates interacting with with a whole host of different people, exploring themes like justice and truth and morality. And his, his approach, the Socratic approach, was to have dialogue, which is the root of dialectic, is to have dialogue with, his, with different people over these issues to get as many different perspectives as possible. And it was through that dialogue and through this exploring of different perspectives that Socrates said we'd get closer to the truth, right? Because it wasn't that, it, it, that the truth had one facet. It was that there was, it was multifaceted. And, it, and through dialogue, we'd get a, we can get a grip on the various facets easier than if we're just in isolation with ourselves, trying to imagine in our own heads, you know, all the different facets of something, right? It, it, you'd be limited. So it's through Socratic, the Socratic method, through dialogue and interaction with others who have different views and different perspectives, that we can build a, a more truer representative picture of what's actually going on in the reality. Socrates is where this starts. And then Hegel, Aristotle, Hegel, Marx, they all run with it. Hegel's known for his stages of history. And in that, he talks about there's uh, the first uh, the thesis is like a step one, and then there'll be a response to that, an antithesis, which is like the a duality, right? The opposite. And then the third stage is when the antithesis and the thesis are synthesized together and you get a blend. And that's, a new, that's the next stage in history. So Hegel deals with, with this, but he does it, deal, deals with it through stages of history uh, framework. And then this influenced Marx. So we all know about, or I don't know if we all know, but Marx uh, was very popular for his theory of dialectical materialism. And this is the idea that the material for the material productive forces, like like the, the tools and the inputs of capitalism, whether that's buildings or equipment, machines, that these implements, according to Marx, determined the social order the high, whether or not how classes, how the classes were arranged, who, whether laborers and capitalists were in certain relationships. So all the different relationships between people in the market, Marx posited as being a, a reflection or a function of just these physical tools. And that's, and that as those tools changed and as those, those relationships would change, that's the idea. So essentially that society is a product of these material forces that are prior to. And the criticism of this was that, well, who, who made those physical implements, right? So they didn't just drop out of the sky. They were made and created by people too. So they, so there's like a, there's a feedback going on here, right? Uh, there's an interaction 
going on that I don't think is always captured in Marx all that well. It's almost seems like those those implements have a mind of their own and they're shaping history. And in, in reality, it's like people create those implements. So why wouldn't people be, you know, credited with having a, a, a role in shaping history? But regardless, so that's, or, or that's, even the ideas, the ideas uh, that people have behind how to use those tools, right? Because we, yeah. we see capital being used in different ways as our understanding changes in time. That's right. You know, it's not frozen. Pardon. Okay, so going on, the final thinker I want to touch on was Ayn Rand. This is the one that was directly, I would say, directly responsible for how Chris's view, view of the dialectical uh, was to emerge, right? And, and Ayn Rand had what's called the tri-level model in her in her work and the, so imagine three levels and they're all related to each other they're all in, in an interaction and in a relationship with each other the, the first level the base level is the, is the personal sphere that would be like your your perceptions and your your psychological epistemological toolkit that you can that you experience the world through then the next level after that is culture so this would be the shared practices traditions language views ideas things that they're viral, whatever is going on at the cultural level. And then the third level is the political and the economic level. This is where laws are passed. This is where institutions and the economy um, make decisions about various things, right? Businesses and, and government, you can think of that as the third level. And so Rand's point was that this tri-level model shows that you can't just make a change on one of the levels and just ignore the others, right? So an example of this would be, people would say, uh, we can, we need to solve poverty and poverty is a problem. So let's just create a, uh, we'll just create a, a, a law or a, a benefit at the level of the of politics, at the third level, the government politics and economy, and then that'll solve the problem of poverty. But that neglects the drivers of poverty that are at the cultural level and at the individual level and our perceptions and our, and our, um, and so the point is, is that if you want to solve a complicated social problem like poverty or war or um, corruption or immigration, even or abortion or anything at all, really, that's complicated at the social level. It's not enough to look at one of these dimensions, politics or culture or your individual actions. You actually have to look at all three and imagine how to operate on all three such that, that you get to where you, you get the goal you want, because if you're just looking at one of the levels, then it's not systematic and that it your in your efforts will be short will be won't be effective really it'd be kind of like being a gardener and wanting to have a beautiful garden and if you just focus on watering but don't consider soil or nutrients or genetics or any of the other things that are relevant to having a successful garden then you you just focus on one you're going to have a your, your plants aren't going to thrive and you're going to be stymied in your in your um in your in your goal so this the tri-level model from rand is really important in understanding this. And the other element that Chris Sayabara adds to it is Hayekian. And that's kind of why I, another reason why I wanted to bring this up is because it, it ties into our, um, our running theme about Hayek and his ideas about knowledge. And so essentially the idea here is that if we don't have a dialectical awareness of, of kind of these interrelationships, we tend to be open to utopian solutions to these complicated problems. And let me see if I can give an example of this. So a Marxist who sees a, a, a conflict between capitalism and, and freedom or capitalism and government, they will solve this conflict by just saying, well, we'll just get rid of the market, we'll get rid of capitalism and just collapse all decision-making into the state. 
That's that's the that's the standard Marxist solution. And then, of course, the problem there is, well, how does the state know how to do what the market did, right? Because the market's this giant coordinating learning mechanism, this, this, this ecosystem with feedback and profit through profit and loss and prices. And through that system, we, we, uh, we see, we discover, right, a whole, a whole order that we wouldn't have been able to plan. And it's, and it's far more superior to anything that we could come up with on our own in a, on, a, on a spreadsheet or in an in a ivory tower somewhere. So the Marxist solution is kind of one-sided and, and incomplete because the government lacks what it needs to be effective in doing what Marx would want it to do. But the, the same thing happens with the anarchists on the, on the libertarian side, right? The, the Rothbardian anarcho-capitalists in the, in the naive sense, they would collapse the, the conflict between the government and the market and, and to the mar into the market completely and just get rid of government altogether and say every relationship should be a market relationship. And the problem with this in, in is that it's also utopian in, in, a, in a very similar way that the Marxist is a utopian view, um, because for one, it's, a, it's definitely a contextual or, or without context. It's just this idea that people will get along magically, no matter what their culture is, no matter what their ideas are, no matter anything. We just need to make sure there's no monopoly of, of, of a rule setting. There's no government entity. As long as we have no government, then this naive view is that things will just magically work out. Now, it's not I'm not going to make a straw man argument and say that perfection will be will result. They, I mean, the Rothbardians will still believe that criminals will exist and and things like that. But but they believe that on the whole, society can can order itself much better than it can with a government. And that's not that's an untested premise. That's that's there's a bit of a that's an ahistorical universal claim that is not empirical. It's just basically it's a, it's an armchair armchair theorist. Can I jump it? Yeah, jump, jump in, in real quick. Just, just to add to what you're saying, because I, I, I love what I'm hearing and, and it makes me think, well, it, I mean, it's really, it's just a, a naive and short-sighted complaint, right? Because if, if that uh, anarcho-capitalist uh, says, well, the solution is just to get rid of government and lean towards markets, then it's just the same problem that we said with going towards the state making pure decision, we're faced with we got to hold uh, that same scope um, to to that argument. I and I would say it actually falls under the same problem, which is, brother, government is a market. What do you mean? What do you mean? Get rid of government and just lean on pure markets? Literally, when we look at governments, it is a manifestation. Government is a manifestation of a market that we as men and women have created all over the world. And we've got different governments, county, city, state, parish, nation, what have you. But these are markets that weren't made by aardvarks. They weren't made by storks. It wasn't like you're, uh, and, and that's what I think it's, it's also part of it is really the dialectic is, is truly taking time. I love that it's the practical approach and, and looking at what we're really looking at in reality. What are we really looking at? Not this theoretical argument of what the world, no, what is it? What is it really? And really government, what is it? We peer behind and it's, it, and it's consensual 
contractual relationships that people express and reinforce every day as they continue to see it as a better way than any other way that they know. I mean, that's what we see as, as the governments we form today being a better institutional mechanism for, for providing, you know, justice, you know, law and these things than the other ways we have been taught or understand have come before. And until we have a better tool, um, then, then, then that, it, but I see it's still a market, right? It's still a market where services are being delivered. By yeah, there's an exchange that happening there. And I think, and to make the point really clear is that there's a lot of government in the market, right? And there's a lot of market in the government. These things are not separate as neatly as we want to draw lines between them. There's, they, they're actually entangled. And there's a whole political, whole school of political economy called entangled political economy that is that starts with this dialectical notion that that, that these strict separations are are overwrought and that there's a lot more uh, interaction and, and entanglement in these different things than what we come to what we historically have thought. And so, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Is that the government isn't isn't separate from the market completely. There's a big relationship, and there's elements of markets in government, right? Lobbying. There's oh, an yeah. element of a market there. Voting is an is, there's an element of a market there. You're, you know, there's a, a collective in, choice prop in happening. Fact, I, I would say that not understanding the it as a market does it does us a disservice to not seeing the problems yeah. that we keep running into, right? Because if you just look at it as another market that men and women go work at, put their pants on one leg at a time, unless you lay on your back, right? And you can kind of put your pants on both legs at a time. There's a way to do that. You know, after Thanksgiving, that might be necessary. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, you know, I, when you, when we look at it as a market, because when we just say government and we need that, well, then all of a sudden the men and women that are working and putting and going and receiving uh, remuneration and benefits and privileges for, for doing that job with, with their limited understanding and their limited scope and that compartmentalized, you know, uh, state that it's no longer subject to the same scrutiny that yeah. someone, a hot, uh, you know, a vendor making sandwiches or, you know, uh, a lemonade stand, literally people are, are given this different um, standard, you know, it's double right. And that's where the public choice insights come from. I'm not sure if our listeners are up on this, but the public choice school in economics uh, started this ball a, a rolling, a few, uh, I think it was in the 60s. Anyway, they they made it a point to systematically analyze government actors as if they were in a market, as if they were maximizing value for themselves, right? Or, or, or right. So it's a applying the selfish, rational model that we apply to consumers and producers in the market, applying that to the government as well. That's a, yielded a lot of benefits in political economy, right? It's and it's to your point is great because if we don't have that idea, it's we tend to, to forget that government's made up of, of humans that are flesh and blood, and we start to ascribe to them some kind of altruistic motivations. But they're just they're just here to to make the world a better place, like a Santa Claus kind of figure, a God figure. When in reality, no, they have their own goals. They're, maybe they're looking for power, income, job, whatever it is. But they're not. They're not purely here to just to you know sacrifice their their lives for the better of the world, right? They're they're they are just like us. And I, so I, 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 I agree. To take that point that they're just like us. I would go even further and say it's it's a Santa Claus reality to look at men and women in various positions of politics 
as truly having this overreaching power and authority that's often ascribed with through decision making you know in, in reporting and in media because in reality we know that men and women come into power for a few years or a limited amount of time and while they're in those positions of power they are working for and with other people in relative positions of power it, it's like there are there's a lot of uh, decisions made by a lot of people behind the scenes and it's not really like the lobbying like you mentioned earlier i mean there are a lot of forces at play and i was i was thinking about blockchain when we look at taking a market approach to government and how that that bleeds into blockchain and regulation right because if we just treat all people equally uh ceteris paribus all <laughs> ceteris people um, if we if we treat all all people equally and we start looking at um, the the regulators or the men and women who currently work in positions of government that are say, saying certain things about what their intentions are well they don't actually say that but try to, try to find out what the intentions are and what the motivations are behind those people stating hey we think that um, this cryptocurrency uh, needs to be regulated, or this market needs to uh, be limited, and 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 this for this reason, and, and, and in this way, and, and and of course, this we just talked about this yesterday in, in our in our live stream. But it makes me think of how funny is this? I don't know if you caught this, Devin, but when it comes to regulation and blockchain, you hear people who currently are in charge of regulating financial institutions, which um, uh, with all the power and oversight, look, we have the ever Evergrande, um, that that debacle, and then there's, and of course, uh, financial traditional markets are littered with historical accident after accident after accident of mismanagement of Enron, of Bernie, of this or that. But then you look in blockchain, and did all of this oversight and power and technology, and did it what did it does it save people from BitConnect, and does it come and save people? from the scams, the pump and dumps and crypto, I cannot think of one time, I can't think of one time that uh, men and women working for members of financial oversight committees or regulatory bodies um, in these markets have ever once at all come forward with an with an example of discovering a, a fraud or a glitch or a bug or a hack in blockchain or crypto it's always been discovered by the community recently there was one for ethereum OpenSea that was discovered by someone on twitter. twitter yeah twitter user so right. so the idea is like you know we talk about taxation without representation and where this leads to but you know i think it's important to look at you know, uh, people who work in different markets, look at government as a market and, yep. and try to understand the motivations of the of the people and, and what what they benefit from and what they say, right? Put it into context. Put it into context. That's what I love about the dialectic, the context, the, the contextual yeah. um, application. And um, that, and there was one that other, objective, objective, but not objectivism, but the objective. There's approach. one other element of this that I wanted to highlight because we touched on it briefly, but I think there's more that could be said to make it clear for our listeners what, what this is talking about. But um, so we talked about the duality between market and state or capitalism and socialism, how these are false choices, essentially, because there's elements of both. They're, they're, they, they, each of these options has elements of the other embedded in it. 
so they can't be so neatly you know uh segmented that's that's kind of the the overarching point and i think there's other dualities that help make this point clear and so uh often you hear about the 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 conflict between faith and science right that's a common that's an old an old dualism that you we we still hear about right that there's that on one hand you can have a faith-based approach and then on the other hand you can be or you can be scientific but i think that's overplayed and that, that the point here is that a, a dialectical understanding will say that show how that's an overplayed separation because if you look at science there's a great deal of 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 uh, of faith involved you got you have faith in the methods you have faith in the fact that well the faith level is that you're having to come up first of all with a certain set of relationships that you're that you're looking at and you're isolating the ones that you think are important and you're analyzing and, and running observations or experimenting on those and holding other things constant or ignoring them or not looking at them in, as part of your analysis so there's so it's not purely all empirical there you come to the experiment or into the to the into the process the scientific process with a set of assumptions a set of theories and you could say that's a, an element of faith and you can now that of course that gets tested so it's not purely faith-based but just to say that there's no faith in science is wrong and the same thing with with faith right there's there's lots of empirical scientific components or elements in in a faith in a faith system whether it's history even, uh... I love right. that you brought that up. I had written this down <clears throat> that the dialectic approach in the world of the intellectual field is similar to the Gnostic approach in, in spirituality, which is this dialectic version of spirituality. The Gnostic is a knowledge-based look at the truth and look at what could be gleaned from this religion and it's not a uh, literal base. It's it's an understanding that which can be universal and, and that which can be known to be true. So I, I see that there's this bridge between Gnostic um, intellectual maturity. I, I'm, I'm almost mm -hmm. thinking that dialectic, the dialectical thinking is an intellectual maturity, just as Gnosticism is considered to be a, a, a higher spiritual, spiritual understanding, spiritual right. maturity, and, and a more complete spiritual understanding. Yeah, I think there's a definite parallel there. And it also it makes me goes, think, okay. uh, just going to what you were saying, I'm going to finish this off because it's it's tying into spirituality. And and I and I love the spiritual layer. And, and from a, a syncretistic a syncretism, which is like the... Uh, dialectical method applied to to religion and philosophy another it's actually another word for the dialectical method syncretism is, is a philosophy that espouses the same when you look at another way to interpret scripture and religion well there is a religious belief that god is in everything have you ever heard that notion that god is in everything i am in everything i am all well a Gnostic approach to God would be to interpret God uh, not as uh, an, this entity that's, that's separate from everything. It would it would say to interpret God in the, as as truth as, as in the, as could the I interrupt and of, say as entangled with everything? Would that be fair absolutely, to say? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And 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 to say that. That if you define, you look at the practical, the objective, the objective approach, if you look at uh, the definition of God as being truth, not perspective, but but truth, like the, the rock, the 
the the water, uh, the whatever it is capital was, T. yeah, the capital T, and and when you take that, uh, well, then that's the dialectic, right? That's in scripture. I am in everything. Well, truth is in everything. It's that it's that idea of trying to find that in everything that is is the big T. Another way to say it is, it's a starting point is that everything is unified. There's a one, there's one universe that everything exists in. Right. And that, and that there's relationships between all of the elements. And I would like to, in this, in this mode, uh, one day, uh, maybe talk about bringing Santos Bonacci and reaching out to him because he's done a lot of work in this field and syncretism, which um, goes through language in, in different philosophy, sciences, and religion, and, and, and really takes in the, the dialectical method. Um, Seeing the, uni- the interaction and in, in the linkages between these things, right? After Chris, of, of course. Oh, yeah, I mean, right. Maybe we'll have a, pow- a power panel. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think this ties very nicely into what we wanted to touch on next and, and, and bring this uh, all around is nirvana fallacy and utopias right mm. so nirvana fallacy is you know the say i don't i look at someone else's uh version of the world or their idea and i say no because it doesn't solve an issue without looking at my own world uh and realizing that issue is also not solved um is is probably a, a good way i know there are some other nuances to it but that's pretty much it but how does this and in you know ryan you touched on utopia i think you find everything um about dialectic thinking and and everything that uh Saibara is talking about where does dialectic thinking fit in and how does it save us from hmm. from dangerous thinking yeah it's a, good, it's a great question so the dialect i, I'll, I can re- kind of tackle that question by talking a little bit about the main insights that Chris Sayabara highlights in his book, Marx, Hayek, and Utopia, because this is about, this one book is about this one issue. So Hayek makes the point that, that in order to successfully transform society into what you envision it to be and solve all those complicated questions and to cre- actually create utopia on earth, you'd have to have this perspective outside of yourself outside of because you're because we're bound up in the order we're trying to look at right we're entangled back to that word we're entangled in the context so in order to see where the whole in order to have a system level view of it a synoptic view and to see like big picture stuff like god would about where things are headed you would have to be able to rip yourself out of your context and look at it from a third person perspective like like a god's eye view and so since we can't do that as humans, Hayek cautions that these system level resets, these, these, these big, big toe theories, theory of everything, right, about how we could transform society and just remake it completely, that, that's, that that suffers what he calls the synoptic delusion, this idea that you have that kind of intelligence, that you have that perspective, which we don't. So, he, so anytime, no matter what, your your goal is anytime you're coming at big social change from this idea that we're just going to completely recreate everything and and create utopia from a Hayekian perspective this is assuming way more knowledge than what's actually possible for humans so what so how do we get around that pitfall this this nirvana fallacy pitfall or this utopian pitfall one of the ways to do it is to remember that we're entangled in the systems we're trying to change and so that it's going to have so that any change is going to have to be evolutionary. It's going to have to be built on the foundation 
using the current system as an input instead of something just to move past. That's that's kind of so an evolution. So evolution is about how over time through variation, a system will adapt and to become something new to meet new challenges. Right. It will take on new characteristics, make it suitable for meeting new challenges. Well, that's the framework we're going to have to approach if we want to be dialectical about social change. We're going to have to take what exists as a starting point and then working within that to see where we can be effective in changing things to get closer to what we want to, where we want to be. So it's a step-by-step piecemeal thing where we only, we, we, it's very experimental, right? We don't know what would happen if we got rid of certain policies or certain institutions. So instead of just saying, let's do that, a dialectical perspective would say, well, let's experiment with it. Let's see what, let's let the States try that out, or let's let cities try their own, their own path. Right. Or let's, let's, let's be open to experimentation and uncertainty and seeing what comes out of this. And then, so it's through learning, through experimentation and learning piecemeal, instead of doing wholesale changes, it's through this experimental step-by-step method that you can get past, you, you can at least minimize the risk of, of shooting for utopia because you're never doing everything at once. You're not overhauling the whole system at once. You're not changing anything foundationally without being very careful about it. And so I think, the answer is it's, it's, it's an evolutionary perspective, an evolutionary method to social change versus one that tries to construct something completely new out of the air, out of the ether, as it were, right? It's, so it's all about being experimental and, um, and, and being hum- humble about what we don't know, right? So it's back to Hayek, the humility about what we, about what we can create and design, the Which limits of human knowledge. Which goes back to freedom and promotes freedom of choice, right? Because if you understand the limitations of, of your own, then you wish to be an environment that allows for failure to learn from a feedback, you know, feedback loop, feedback mechanism where others can make decisions based upon their understanding and not be forced to, to act based upon your limited knowledge in the other way. And also what you're saying earlier, it also uh, brings to mind, can you create a utopia if you don't understand the cause of dysutopia and and that's really the same thing another way of what we just said right it's all these people running around saying i want to fix this and i want to fix that and i want to fix that but if we really humble ourselves and really say okay i i agree that there's a lot of start there's a lot of genesis there's a whole bunch of bad stuff here and there but what do I really understand? What's the misallocation of resources? Do I understand the incentives of the intentions behind the decisions being made? Do I understand the mechanisms? To, have I taken the time to ask questions and really understand the inner workings of these systems that, as you said, are so complex, they can take lifetimes you know, to understand just one, one nuance of, of a market? So, okay. That was my two cents on that. No, I think that's spot on. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, Ryan, you've touched now on kind of overcoming duality uh, as part of that, but do you, do you have anything else you wanted to say specifically to that point? Um, well, there's another duality that we could talk about briefly, the mind body duality. That's a yeah, fun one. So Descartes, course. Descartes, mm-hmm. the famous uh, philosopher would, would say, I think therefore I am right. And that, and then from that, there's this cart. Cartesian duality that's kind of yeah. come down from his work, which is creates this. And, and I think science is still trying to uh, deal with this. I mean, I'm sure we've moved past it somewhat, but we're still looking for the mind right in, in the brain, like brain scientists still haven't found the mind. 
They, at some point, they thought the functions were located in separate regions. Now we're at the point we realize it's a synergistic thing that, that the regions work together and these, the mind is like an emergent property instead of something that you could find in a certain mechanism. So this mind-body thing, yeah. The duality. So go, think about uh, the yin-yang symbol. You got the, the, the black and white, right? And the yin-yang symbol is an image that actually uh, kind of demonstrates what the, what the dialectic is. So the, the white and the black are mixed together in, that, in, that, in the yin-yang, right? There's a dot on each side that, is, that shows those two colors are mixed together. So they, they essentially, they, that symbol is a component of two things that need each other, right? You take away the white, you wouldn't have the yin-yang. You take away the black, you wouldn't have it. And white and black don't exist without each other. It's like on and off or life and death. They, these processes are intertwined, right? So that symbol is the solution to the mind-body problem. There is no such thing as the mind separate from the body, just like the body doesn't exist in a human sense separate from the mind, right? Because of awareness and all that. So it's this, it's this idea that we don't need to separate or we don't need to separate things so, so far and keep them in hermetically sealed containers away from each other and try to figure them out in isolation. It's that the real trick is to figure out how these things work in, in, in a, in a interaction. How does the interaction work? And then, and then also, also that's, that that's it. zooming, like there's no one uh, solution, right? It, it's, it's always a more complicated uh, synergy of, mm-hmm. of smaller processes or, or whatever right. would, would be it. That's great. I, I do want to tie that into blockchain if we can, and, and not the technology necessarily, though there's, there's tons to talk about there, but the culture of, of blockchain and specifically yeah, that's a good Bitcoin. Point. You know, because if we go back to that tri-level model and yeah. we consider that social change won't happen just on one level, it's going to take mm-hmm. all three. The interesting thing to think about is how does the emergence of blockchain and, and DeFi and, and this whole world of, of alternative forms of credit and money, how does that change the culture? Because it does have an impact on the culture and our ideas and what we, our expectations and how we also consider other elements like, like, the, like the fiat system. Like blockchain yep. has an impact on how we think about the dollar, how we think about government, how we think about all kinds of things, evolution of, of institutions. It, it, it can, it's a, it's a, giant innovation that is going to ripple have effects that ripple out and it won't just be economic it has an impact on the way we we see ourselves in our society and so i think if you go back to that tri-level model if if blockchain is changing politics and economics it's changing culture it's it's going to end up changing that that's that's going to be the kind of thing that has a change on all levels and so it has the capacity to be something that really does transform our society but it won't be in a, in, a very, in a very simple way where it's like, okay, new money, change at the political level, done. It's like, no, it's these interactions between the new money, the culture, and the ideas and how all those things interact and how that interaction, you know, what path that takes over time will, will determine what, what the future is. So I, but I do believe that, it's not, that, that the blockchain innovation will have a big impact in how we see money and, and finance. Oh, yeah. I mean, and, how, and that and that'll change what we expect from our yes. from our government. Yeah, well, we won't uh, be as satisfied with what with what's come in the past. A, a little dial, a little dialectical insight into blockchain and traditional finance, and this brings me back to one I think one of the weaknesses of maximalism, Bitcoin maximalism. And I, I look at I was actually talking to somebody about this earlier uh, and who was wanting to learn about cryptocurrency and maybe different perspectives of blockchains. But I said, 
Well, let's think about this. It's not even a theory or a belief that you will have other blockchains of value until they're hacked or corrupted. Because if you believe that Bitcoin is valuable or you believe dollars are valuable, well, know that there is wrapped Bitcoin on Ethereum. There's wrapped Bitcoin on different blockchains and it's actually locked up, time locked in protocols. So as of now, the security and strength of Bitcoin the maximalist, that foundation, that the fact that Bitcoin isn't going anywhere, this is digital gold, and this is the this is the one that's allowed for all these. Well, that that value that you're talking about has all is already giving lifeblood. It's a seed planted on other blockchains because there are other blockchains right now that by code have locked up a lot of Bitcoin on their blockchains right now. So so long as that Bitcoin that you speak so highly of is a value and people want it and it's highly sought after and Bitcoin can be wrapped and thrown onto other chains. Well, until those chains are hacked or people no longer want to use them or find them of value, it's, they're at least going to have the value of that Bitcoin. So it's almost like maximalism, it, it's, it's already been proven wrong. Like there's already it's, it's already been defeated. You know, it's, it, that and there's another is just a theory. There's another theory that's been defeated that deals with these same issues. So when Bitcoin first came out, there was a lot of articles on Mises.org and various other libertarian sites talking about how Bitcoin couldn't really be a money because it fails the uh, regression theorem test for money. And this was this idea that Mises put up about the re this regression theorem idea is that money first exists prior to something becoming money, it must first exist as a commodity that has value that is exchanged for its value itself. And then over time, that thing will then be, become selected as money because of uh, because it solves certain problems with barter and you know the story. But the, the theory with regression theory is that the value that money has today is a product is a function of the value it had yesterday. And the value it had yesterday is a function of it, the value it had the day before. And through this, you regress back to the beginning of where the thing was uh, was exchanged just for a, for its value in itself and its use as a commodity. So it'd be like, if it's talking about gold, we'd, we'd be using it as jewelry or, or some kind of implement, right? Well, the conclusion to this line of thinking was, is that since paper money had no prior use as a commodity, then it's it's really not a true money. And it's it's this fake thing, right? <clears throat> and so this was the Mises Austrian take on, on money. And it is in some quarters still discussed. Well, these people were using this argument about re the regression theorem to say that Bitcoin could never be money because it doesn't regress back to any kind of commodity that was valuable on its own. Now, the, we could debate whether or not uh, graphics cards and computers had value, but putting that aside, this, uh, the fact that Bitcoin does uh, exist as a monetary system, the fact that it is used to, to, to buy things, people do hold it from, for a monetary use. And there's an ent entire monetary economy springing up in this world. It's falsified the regression theorem. It, it, it's proven that that, 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 that theorem is not necessary for, some, for money to exist because here we have it. And it, and, and it didn't follow that pattern, right? And so the, uh, the undialectical, you know, theory is everything, you know, universal law kind of people, those people would say, well, Bitcoin's not money because it doesn't meet this, this abstract concept we have. Whereas a dialectical view would say, okay, well, well, clearly this thing exists in reality. And so we, maybe we should return, maybe we should rethink this, the, 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 uh, these universal principles that, that, 
that we're that we just assume always have to hold, right? Or or better yet, reverse engineer and say, okay, time out. I think that money has to regress to something of value. And I I said, well, Bitcoin will never be money because it, it has no source of substance of value. Um, however, I look around me and Bitcoin's achieved money, like you said. So mm. either- Either the theory is wrong. <laughs> either the theory is wrong or I missed up. I miss, I missed, mm-hmm. maybe I missed- An element. That, that an element, that there is a source of value. And then I'll go back to what you said earlier and say, well, let's just, let's just not look into this and let's go back and look into that. If you believe that the US dollar has value, then you cannot ignore the, the the value inputs of Bitcoin because it's not just graphics cards. Sure, right. It's a graphics card that does actually have real silicone, metal, plastic labor hours, a warehouse. It could be used as this, but instead it's being used that there is a value right. in that. But take that aside. There is time. There is physical energy, electricity mm-hmm. being used in People pay their electric bills. Electricity costs money. So it's the opportunity cost of time and how you use these resources, whether it's a graphics card or it's your energy bill. So there is an actual real dollar input value to every, any Bitcoin that's ever been made. And if you're a Marxist and you talk about the labor theory of value, well, hello, I mean, it's people. It's like, look at Satoshi, whoever the original people were, the mysterious actual men and women that worked on it and actually sent something of value and sent it to another and and, and put their time and energy and computer. I'm glad you brought that up because the people who are making this criticism claim they're, they're proponents of the subjective theory of value. But it's funny that that their that their subjective theory of value is based on such an objective foundation, this regression theorem, right? Because if they really were true as subjectivists, they would just say, well, money can be whatever people assume it is, whatever they want it to be. Whatever the network effects make it possible for money to exist, that's money, right? And it's so it's very much a contextual thing. Well, it's in certain contexts, it'll be one thing and others, it'll be a different thing. And that's the subjective view because it's all based on our ideas in our head. And there's no the uh, the material uh, the material level layer is not what's important here. It's it's what how we think about things, right? Uh, and here's yeah. the dialectical approach, except for the fact that yes, you're right. It's it's, it's what's in our head. However, for some reason, we tend to prefer prefer warmth to being freezing. And so yeah. if you can offer a coat that keeps someone dry from being wet. So yeah, there's that subjective element, but there's there's the, there's the objective reality that it comes together with that if you travel across the world, you come to someone who has no salt or spices and you say, hey, I've got salt and spices that will really make this dish increase all of us. There's a shared value. So there's that objective reality that we interplay yeah. with that, that, that even allows us to communicate or even come up with this idea. Hey, I think and that's, I like this. And that's Other the dialectical like point. That's yeah. the dialectical point is we're marrying reality is a marriage of subjective and objective elements, right? It's a yeah. subjective human interacting in an objective reality, more or less. We experience it subjectively, but there is a foundational base layer that exists independent of what we think. Yeah. But um, if we're going back to money, it's always had context, right? Uh, gift economies or, hey, let me pay you a little more this time or a little less this time so that we have this relationship built. Like, you know what I mean? There's there's much more to it. I think when we when we touch on maximalism, when we touch on, you know, well, 
oh, there's so many layers. There, there's obviously that we just talked about the social layer of maximalism. There's the fundamental layer. You know, Bitcoin is fundamentally, from a technology standpoint, this you know certain thing. But then it goes much further than that. Like, why is Ethereum not also that thing? And and that might be getting too deep into the weeds, but yeah, it's interesting to think about and uh, getting to a a solution. You know, there is no one solution, but getting to a a more what's called a dialectic inclusive agreement uh, or or a consensus. That might yeah, be yeah, yeah. I like really, that you said yeah. that because I actually wrote that down, Devin. The dialectic method as a tool towards freedom, it's the only method that's truly inclusive yeah. of all groups, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it seeks to find what that is in someone's perspective. That, that it is true. It, it is true. So it is the ultimate inclusivity. Mm-hmm. It's a method of thinking about things that leaves room for con- contradictions. That's one way to say it. It's a, it's a way of imagining the world that's not free of contradictions. You're, you, you, if you're if you okay with complexity, then you you need you have to come around to being okay with contradictions because they exist, and and both things can be true at once, and that's the that's kind of where that's the big hurdle that it takes to get some people over the dialectical um, view to to come around to seeing what it is is that there's a tendency to to hate contradiction and to think that all contradiction has to be explained it, it, to the benefit of one side or the other, and when in reality. Things the the reality is messy and big enough to hold com- contradictory truths at, at, at certain levels, right? There, it, it, and that and the key for humans is to figure out well what level is it true and in what level is it not true, right? Because it and that and that this is abstract again, but yeah, that that's the idea is that contradictions do exist and we have to be able to be comfortable with them and not and not use and not exp- not try to explain them away as being like a mm-hmm. Uh, a myth or a, a product of our of our um, misunderstanding, and that we just have to learn to see things the right way, and everything will all of a sudden be resolved. It's like, well, no, that, that it's not like that. We have a dialectical approach would say the contradictions are real, and they and they're related to each other, and they and these seemingly contradictory elements are actually in a relationship that's very harmonious. <laughs> it just well, needs to be seen that way or understood that way. Yeah, I, I I think that was the cherry on top, the, uh, the 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 wrapping on the present under the tree. That was uh, very well done. Uh, thank you for wrapping it up. And uh, I think we can call this one. And we got an exciting topic next week. We have a, a guest coming on, uh, hopefully sometime soon. Chris, if you're listening, Chris Sayabara. Uh, We're will invite be, him. Yes, that would be amazing. And um, I think in the near future we'll also have a um, a former SEC attorney. Uh, coming on to uh, to chat with us. So looking forward to those discussions. And uh, as always, I enjoyed learning from you guys. Uh, I came in knowing close to nothing and uh, you guys have uh, <laughs> shaking your um, But no, seriously, uh, the amount of information I take away from these discussions is um, I know everyone listening does as well. So it's just, yeah, I, I really appreciate your time, guys. Well, thank you. That's, that's very nice to say. Yeah, I, I mean, it's always interactive. We learn too. Yeah. That's very kind. My approach is to listen to you guys and then uh, kind of I, I like to just agree and just see if I can say it in a way that I'm, I'm understanding. And if I understand it, I sound I sound pretty smart. <laughs> I love it. All right, guys. Um, I will uh, see you guys next week. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Have a good one.